Please remain standing and hear the gospel beginning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. This is the gospel of the Lord. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. When I uh, previously worked in management for IBM, you would have to sit down with your employees, all your employees in January, and work out a performance plan for them for the year. My boss did the same thing for me. I'm sure many of you have gone through this from one side or from the other, on one side of the desk or the other. And then at the end of the year, I would evaluate them against the plan. And during this process, had to be on guard against two types of people. Right, the first would be those who, knowing that they're going to be judged by this standard and wanting to exceed expectations, would want you to take stuff out of their performance plan. They want to under-promise and over-deliver. They would always want their targets reduced and made more manageable. So that at the end of the year they could say, oh look, I exceeded my targets. At least this type of person, you know, at least they have some measure of sobriety about, you know, what can actually be accomplished. And then there were the naive employees who would overestimate both their skill and their work ethic. And they would want everything in their plans. Oh yeah, I can do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Put it all in there. And then they would almost surely under-deliver. These things are sort of like New Year's resolutions. I'd always sit on the other side of the desk thinking, no, you can't do that. <laughs> These people, though, they're natural optimists. Very optimistic people. What could go wrong? There was one guy in a very important job. He became infamous in our little corner of IBM for constantly over-promising and constantly, quite dramatically often, under-delivering. He sort of had the, the, what I call the Mary Poppins approach. right? Everything was going to be wonderful. Oh, sure, 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 I can do that, I can do that. And he was unaware, really blindly unaware of the consequences of this. He thought it was harmless, actually. In the end, it cost him his job. We're going to meet both kinds of people in the parable today. Both kinds. 
Those who overpromise and underdeliver, those who underpromise and overdeliver. Our text, the short text, is the parable we read from Matthew 21, beginning at verse 28. I'm going to make three points. Three points. The context, the parable, the application. The context, the parable, the application. It's a simple, easy-to-understand parable, I think. First, the context. The context here is really helpful. Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's in the last week of his life. The church celebrates this on Palm Sunday. And as he moves toward the cross, the intensity level of his confrontation with the religious leaders in Israel increases quite dramatically. And at this point, it's about to become white hot. In fact, this parable is the first in a series of three parables, three in a row that he tells, and they all confront the Jewish leadership and they all do it in the most dreadful, direct manner possible. The three parables are marked by this ratcheting up, this increasing level of intensity and denunciation. So this one, this is the nice parable. This is like the warm-up parable. There are two more blistering parables in the bullpen. And so just prior to this, right before our text, Jesus had been challenged as to the grounds of his authority. He somewhat provokes this challenge because he had just engaged in perhaps the most uh, provocative act of his very provocative career. You know, if you think Jesus is a tame figure, you need to read again. That is the biggest problem I'm convinced that we have in the West and in North America, is we just are not actually encountering the Jesus who comes forth from the text of the Gospels. What Jesus does right before this is he drives the money changers out of the temple. You know, he shows up at General Assembly and just overturns all the displays. And he does this, John says, and this has always fascinated me, with a whip that he made with his own two hands. Which meant that he sat down and just sat there, constructing the cord with which he was going to drive everybody out of the temple. Not only does he drive them out, he overturns all their tables. He drives them out with a whip. Jesus does. He comes into the religious center of the nation with a whip. Drives everybody out, and on the way out, just for good measure to make sure they understood him, he takes their tables and he throws them all over. Can your Jesus do that? Or is he just too nice to ever do anything like that? I mean, he wouldn't breach any bourgeois protocols, would he? No, of course not. This Jesus can be an embarrassment to the establishment. And then you know what he does after that? He curses a fig tree. 
So all the fruit on it withers. And the fig tree stands metaphorically for Israel, for her barrenness and her unbelief. And so to put it bluntly, Jesus has everyone's attention right now. And so this is shocking to the chief priests and the elders. They're the guardians of religious orthodoxy. This guy doesn't come from any approved place. And so they ask right before our text about his credentials. They say, hey, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? You can't just come in here and throw tables around. And so at the very end of his ministry, remember, this is the last week of his life. Jesus is going to validate his authority by going back to the beginning. What he does is he goes back to his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. He links his divine authority to John's prophetic ministry. And since they want to know about the source of his authority, Jesus asks them a question. He says, the baptism of John... Was it from heaven or was it from man? Isn't that an interesting response? Where do you get your authority from? He says, look, I'll, I'll ask the theological questions here. And I've got one for you, and it has to do with the baptism of John. Where did it come from, from heaven or from men? And the text tells us that the leaders have a dilemma now. If they say from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe John then? If we say it was from men, they're afraid. They're cowards because they knew that all the people, the text said, held John to be a prophet. That meant that the crowds, the rabble, the unwashed masses, the common people, the sinners, they liked John the Baptist. Go figure. The first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus, confirms this. He records that the crowds that flocked to John the Baptist were great crowds that were moved by him. This is an independent account, separate from your Gospels. So much so, Josephus says, that Herod became afraid of John the Baptist and had him put to death. So they don't answer Jesus. And their little standoff ends in a stalemate. They refuse to answer, and Jesus refuses to tell them where his authority comes from. But he's not done. He's going to continue the discussion, and that's what our little parable's about. That's why he tells the parable. He's in the middle of this discussion with the leader, so that's the second point, the parable. So Jesus is thinking something like, they won't answer my question. So I'm going to help them out. I'm going to tell them a story, and he starts with, what do you think? which seems innocuous enough. What do you think? This is not a question you want Jesus to ask you because he's most definitely not looking for your feedback. What do you think? This is more like that last question that Columbo asks. Some of you are old enough to remember the series Columbo. He asks that one last question before he nails the criminal to the wall and he solves the crime. Right? Just with that cigar, just one more question he would say as he's about to walk out the door. He turns around. That's what this is. I've got just one more question. What do you, what do you think? And the parable is very simple. It follows a, 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 you know, a, a standard pattern. A master 
two contrasting subordinates, two sons. He goes to the first one, son, go work in the vineyard. The vineyard is a standard image for Israel. Go work in the vineyard. Verse 29, the son says, I will not or no. And afterwards, he changes his mind and he goes. He under promises. He says, nope, not going to do it. But then he changes his mind. This could be called in part the parable of the repentant son. Because the word for changed his mind, same word as the word used for repented. He goes to the other son, he says the same thing, and this son says, I will serve. This son is not cranky like the first son. This is a very sweet and compliant chap. This, this son has a very agreeable disposition. He shows great outward respect. He calls his father, sir. But he overpromises. Doesn't go into the vineyard and work. Simple enough story, right? Now Jesus then asks them. Now remember, he's still addressing the priests and the leaders in the context of his John the Baptist discussion. He says, hey, which of the two sons did the will of the father? Uh, it's a question with only one reasonable answer, and they give it. They say the first one. It's as simple as one, two, three, right? It couldn't be easier than that. It's like just... But yet, Jesus has simply forced them into indicting themselves. They can follow the storyline well enough. The story's not hard, but they can't see the self-application, which is always our problem, isn't it? It's not like we can't follow. We just think that this stuff applies to other people. So Jesus now, in solemn fashion, is going to make the application for them. In fact, the indictment. That brings us to the third point. This is the application of the parable. And it's not difficult. And at the end of verse 31, he says, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus' solemn witness language. I'm going to testify against you. I tell you the truth. Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So here, the meaning of the parable becomes plain. The refuse of Israel in the, in the leader's eyes, the marginalized and the outcast, sinners, tax gatherers, prostitutes, they were previously disobedient to God. They said no, but now they're responding to the message of the gospel of the kingdom. They are like the first son. Tax collectors. The leaders, though, the priests and the elders, they view themselves as saying yes to God being in the center of the will of God. They're insiders. They're the guardians of the covenant. But they've refused to actually hear Jesus, to hear his call. They don't hear anymore. They do know how to look good, though. They're the second son. They always know the right thing to say. They never really follow through in obedience. Human nature is given to this sort of thing, right? It's given to fraudulent piety. Piety is, slippery, is a slippery ground to be walking around on because the whole 
The whole phenomenon of religious piety is fraught with danger. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Be careful when you pray. Be careful how you pray. Be careful that you're not doing this so men can see you. Be careful how you give. Be careful how you give your alms. Be careful how you publicize your gifts. Be careful how you fast. Jesus is aware that the stuff we do here is the the very breeding ground of hypocrisy and self-deception and fraud. He doesn't say, oh, look, religious people are wonderful people. Christian people are so spectacular, they're beyond the possibility of fraud and self-deception. He recognized this is the ground that breeds this sort of thing. And so these leaders have become like the second son. They always know how to say the right thing. But again, of course, the problem is not simply that they're inconsistent. It's not that they said one thing and did another. It's that they're disobedient. They honor the Lord with their lips. Their heart is far from him. And so they failed. The leaders have failed in their God-given role as leaders. So the two classes of people Jesus mentions as entering the kingdom ahead of the leaders, they're meant to be scandalous. There's a spider here. Sorry. Um, um, so you got these two classes of people. These are people that the religious leaders hate. Tax collectors are often linked with pagan sinners and those outside the covenant. They were hated not only because of their work, but they were viewed as traitorous tools of the Romans. Right, you think you hate the IRS? Or you're suspicious of the IRS if you don't hate the IRS. Maybe some of you love the IRS, but you know what I mean. There's an American suspicion of the IRS. It's nothing like the ancient Israelite hatred of tax collectors. Prostitutes, of course, were also hated, not only for their lifestyle, but also because they were associated with pagans. In fact, both tax collectors and Gentiles were, and um, prostitutes were considered unclean. And so the combination, tax collectors and prostitutes, is a really deeply offensive tandem. These are, in the eyes of the religious leaders, and here you have to place yourself back into the text because we tend to hear this text and say, isn't it wonderful Jesus is merciful to to even sinners like the tax collectors? But to these leaders, these are disgusting people. Right, to get the force of this, you'd have to pick two people you despise. You'd have, to, you'd, you'd have to feel Jesus say something like, the terrorists and the pick your second category of people, they're entering the kingdom of God before you. To get the edge of this parable. The two sets of people in your mind who, who you despise, who you hate, who you think are unclean, who are beyond the pale, who cannot be redeemed. Not only are those people entering the kingdom, they're entering it before you who are inside the covenant. This is why people want to kill Jesus. Notice that the text It describes a present reality. The two groups are entering, tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom before you, the text says, which here has the virtual force of instead of you. 
Right? The exclusion of the, of the leaders is almost certainly assured here. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus is more, if you will, uh, in the mode of appealing to the Jewish leadership. But in this last week of his life, it's almost certain. It's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. And so he brings the conversation in verse 32 back to John. He focuses on the responses of these two classes of people. Two classes of people, again, tax, tax collectors, sinners, or prostitutes, and then the leaders. What was their response, Jesus says, to John's ministry? It's interesting. He goes back to John's ministry. Because there's this deep, profound connection between John and Jesus. How one responds to John will largely determine how one responds to Jesus. And these two groups of people have responded differently to John. And to reject, you know, John's ministry is to reject the one John points to. So Jesus is saying to them, look, your response to John the Baptist will determine your response to me. And so he says, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Right? John sums up the Old Testament prophets, the demands of the law for righteousness. The kingdom brings with it a demand for righteousness, he's saying. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And John heralded forth this righteousness, which the leaders, in their passion for ritual purity and for the traditions of the elders, have rejected. So Jesus says, John came to show you the way of righteousness. You did not believe him. This means they didn't accept John's witness to Jesus. This is the hypocrisy of their claim to be faithful sons in the vineyard of the Lord. It's already been shown before Jesus' ministry. as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm not surprised. You rejected John. If you reject John, you're going to reject me. Again, this would come as an absolute shock to the leaders. Total and complete shock. So in the second half of verse 32, he says, but the tax collectors, you know who's a tax collector here? The guy who wrote this gospel, Matthew himself. The tax collectors like Matthew and the prostitutes, they did believe John. It takes people who might have a deep, profound sense of their own guilt, of their own unworthiness, of being crushed, to hear properly. These people were like the first son. They originally said no, but they changed their mind. They changed their mind about the kingdom upon hearing John. So again, submission to John's baptism is decisive for receiving the kingdom. The final statement, it's a terrible statement really on the leader's condition is at the end of verse 32. And even when you saw it, Jesus says, even when you saw that the tax collectors and prostitutes 
were repenting and responding to John, even then you didn't change your mind and believe him. Unlike the first son, you didn't repent. I think the message of this parable is really quite straightforward. We are, in many ways, first sons. Or at least, we were once first sons. We once said no to the gospel, and at some later point we said yes to the gospel. But the danger is, as religious people, as people with our own lingo and our own jargon and our own traditions and our own ways, as people inside the covenant, we can become like the second son very easily. Because we know how to say all the right things. We know who's in and we know who's out. We know who has white hats and who has black hats. We know who the tax collectors and the prostitutes of our day are. We can name them. Some of us spend a lot of time naming them, pointing them out. So we once said no, then we said yes, but the danger is yeses can slowly become noes. They just become detached from any kind of action. And what happens then is you're in this position where you're always yesing, but under-delivering, saying and not doing. You become like what James says. You hear the word, you walk away, you forget. It's easy to delude ourselves. After all, we're sure we're on the right side. So the parable teaches us, among other things, that talk, especially religious talk, yesing, the right set of religious yeses, yes, sir, yes, master, yes, Lord, is cheap. The second son was a yes man. So we were all like the first son. We all said no. We were like the unclean sinners. In many ways, this parable is trying to get you to see the danger of becoming like the leaders and take the posture of the tax gatherers and sinners. That's what the parable is trying to do for us psychologically. Once we were like that, once we were like the prostitutes and tax collectors, we recognized our uncleanness and we repented and we entered the kingdom of God. But where are we now? Who are we more like now? The way announced in the kingdom is a way of righteousness. If you're my friends, then you'll do what I command. Of course, if you just had the parable, right? There's only two choices in the parable. One, one son says no and does yes. The other says yes and does no. But frankly, we don't really have that choice. Well, we've entered the kingdom. We've taken membership vows. We say yes every week. We make public confessions. We promise to hear and obey. There's nothing wrong with promising to obey God. That's not the second son's problem that he promised and didn't obey. God requires us to affirm that we will obey him. The problem, beloved, and this is the problem, the danger of our own hearts. The problem is leaving the posture of the tax collector and the prostitute. And then you forsake the repentant way of righteousness. 
So in the depth of your heart before God, is there a religious scribe? Or is there a prostitute beating her breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That's the question this parable confronts us with. The call is to remain as you were when you first said yes in the repentant position, the receptive position, the humble position of the tax collector, the unclean one, so that not only when we enter, but as we grow, not only when we enter, but as we grow, we need that posture. And if we embrace that posture, if we beat our breasts, we say, God, be merciful to me, and we take seriously the righteousness of the kingdom, then we can become sons and daughters whose words and deeds match up, maybe not perfectly, but substantially. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.